On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Genesis's nursery crime. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friend Ken Gregory as we continue on into the turning point of the Genesis catalog with Nursery Crime. This is almost an amazing album. <laughs> it's so close, isn't it? It, it is. It, it, it's really, really close. You're, you're absolutely right, Ken. Um, you know, it, it, and as we set it up in the last episode with, with Trespass, you know, you, you can clearly see them developing. And, and obviously, this is the, the first uh, album with the, the classic five-man lineup. So they, they brought Steve and Phil on board. And it, you know, it, in a lot of ways, it's impressive that everything sort of got as close as it did. But there, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. There are some things that maybe hold it back a little bit. But yeah, you know, but again, third album from a, a really young group of guys making a, a genre of music that didn't really have any definitions at this point. It's it's pretty impressive. Yep. Yeah. I, I went backwards to find the softer side of prog rock. I was curious when Fairport Convention started. I was curious when Renaissance started. Uh, and then I got a little more aggressive and I went and I listened to some ELP. Okay. And I'm trying, to, I'm trying to figure out how they wanted to be the Bee Gees in the beginning, but then they got into the 12-string, the strummy, acoustic-y stuff. And if you li- listen to, you know, the second track, um, Absent Friends, and you listen to uh, Harlequin, it's some really fruity, out there, kind of spacey, what we would call, you know, adult music, adult contemporary music, you know? And I was trying to figure out where 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 it all comes together with the dark prog stuff. Well, and and you know it's it's fascinating, Ken, that you bring that up because as I was preparing for this and I was trying to sort of get my lore sorted out, and there's there's a small section in in Mike Rutherford's book where he talks about this sort of transition period where Anthony leaves the band. Um, they bring in Mick Barnard and Phil comes in, then Mick leaves, they be as a four piece and then, mm-hmm. and then Phil comes on board. And one of the concerns that the rest of the band, or maybe even it was Pete and Tony, now that I look at my notes, had the concern that Mick wasn't right for the band. And one of the things that Mick did was he was, um, how do they say it? He was, he was a blues bass guitarist as opposed to a folks bass guitarist, which is what they had mostly been doing. So it, it seems to me that while everyone sort of eventually converged into whatever sphere you want to call prog rock, they were coming at it from perhaps different angles. Obviously looking at, at all of this, you know, that while you've got the big five or six, however you want to, define it in terms of prog they're all really different from each other and maybe it's related to this angle of approach sort of argument 
I support that. They've they've got these odd trajectories, and, and and the folk thing is the hardest one to define. You know, in the prog world, you can point to Yes, and you can point to Pink Floyd with Adam Hart Mother and ELP, but the light stuff is kind of hard for me to get my my fingers on. Well, sure, and I mean, if you think about, I guess Floyd and Yes, you know, they were really driven by classic guitar god type folks, if you will. And while guitars played a big part in Genesis, they weren't used in quite the same way. I'm scrolling through here. I'll, I'll segue to the timeline of progressive rock. And the editors at Wikipedia that contribute to this always impress me by throwing in other influences, th- throwing in a little bit of the jazz when I need it. Nursery Crime is uh, 71. By the time we actually get to 71, it's February. Yes has uh, the Yes album. Genesis would have heard that because uh, Nursery Crime doesn't come till November. So uh, the kinds of things that would have been popping up that year, The Soft Machine, Fourth, Jethro Tull, Aqualung, uh, Caravan, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer have Tarkas, Supertramp has indelibly stamped. Gentle Giant has acquiring the tassel. I don't know why they list the Beach Boys surfs up, but we've we've addressed like pet sounds and some of you know how influential that was. It's just amazing. Frank Zappa, two hundred motels, Pink Floyd Metal. Then we finally November, nursery crime comes around. And and like recording quality on nursery crime is kind of crap. Did you pick up on that vibe? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> I, I absolutely did. And some of the recording quality leading up to this is actually pretty impressive. You know, like the Yes album. It's interesting as we sort of put the the Yes and Genesis trajectories together. So 1971 sees each of these groups releasing their third record. And both of those records shows a, a major, you know, step forward in terms of, of you know, songwriting and, and quality and things of that nature. And each of them featured a significant change in personnel as well. Let's quickly talk about the particulars then of Nursery Crime. So as you mentioned, Ken, it was released in November of 1971. The producer responsible for this crappy sound is one John Anthony. And this was their, um, it was released on a label Charisma. The band lineup was Tony Banks. And again, I'll I'll read what the wikis uh, credit them as doing. That would be Tony Banks on organ, Mellotron, piano, electric piano, and 12-string guitar. Mike Rutherford on bass, bass pedals, 12-string guitar, and voices. Uh, Peter Gabriel on lead vocals, flute, oboe, bass drum, and tambourine. Steve Hackett on electric guitar and 12-string guitar. And Phil Collins on drums, vocals, percussion, and lead vocal on Four Absent Friends, although that is not credited, apparently, on the album itself. The track listing is The Musical Box, Four Absent Friends, The Return of the Giant Hogweed, Seven Stones, Herald the Barrel, Harlequin, and The Fountain of Samalsis. Nursery Crime is the third studio album from the English rock band Genesis, released in November 1971 on Charisma Records. It is the first to feature drummer-slash-vocalist Phil Collins and guitarist Steve Hackett. The album received a mixed response from critics and was not initially a commercial success. It did not enter the UK chart until 1974, when it reached its peak at number 39. However, the album was successful in continental Europe, particularly Italy. 
Following extensive touring in support of their previous album, Trespass, which included the recruitment of Collins and Hackett, the band began writing and rehearsing for a follow-up in Luxford House, East Sussex, with recording following at Trident Studios. Nursery Crime saw the band take a more aggressive direction of some songs with substantially improved drumming. The opening piece, The Musical Box, combined the band's trademark mix of 12-string guitars with harsh electric guitars and keyboards. The song, a macabre fairy story set in Victorian Britain, became the inspiration for the album cover and went on to be a live favorite. Collins brought a new dimension to the group, covering the majority of the backing vocals, including his first lead vocal with Genesis on Four Absent Friends, and bringing in a sense of humor on tracks like Harold the Barrel. Yes. Banks made more prominent use of the Mellotron at Hackett's suggestion and used it prominently on several tracks. The band toured the UK and Europe for over one year to promote the album, which raised their profile in both territories. The tour included a successful Italian leg in April 1972, where the group played to enthusiastic crowds. Nursery Crime was certified silver by the British phonographic industry in 2013. I wanted to quickly talk a little bit about, you know, the lore leading up to this and all of the changes that occurred between Trespass and Nursery Crime. In his book, Mike Rutherford, who obviously was was very good friends with Anthony Phillips, basically describes Anthony Phillips' departure from the band as potentially catastrophic. One of the sort of recurring themes that shows up in Mike's book is this idea that as a group of, of young men in a band working together, generally speaking, the guys in Genesis at this stage were completely consumed by the idea of the band to the point where they didn't necessarily stop and think of other band members in what I'll call humanistic terms. One of the things that Mike points out, because obviously at this point, Anthony was having physical reactions to this anxiety he was, he was pulling around. Mm-hmm. And when he, he came to Mike and said, I can't do this anymore. I need to leave the band. Mike just said, Oh, I guess that's it. It never, and by his own admission, it never occurred to him. Well, why don't we just wait for Anthony to get better? It was, you know, we're on this road and we're going to go. He talks about he and Pete taking a 50 mile drive after the last show that they performed with Anthony. When he got into that car, his idea was Genesis was done. There was nothing else that was going to go on. He said, but by the time we got to Chobham and Pete and I had finished talking, we both realized that if we wanted to make it work, we could. It wasn't that we didn't still believe in, quote, one for all and all for one, end quote. It was more that we were developing a new philosophy to go with it. Let's try it and see. And so they tried it and saw. So the interesting thing about that is... Phil Collins comes on board and you know, there's always the the funny story about how when when Phil auditioned for the band he had to come out to Pete's parents house which apparently was some sort of potentially stately manner and there's a funny story which may or may not be true about Rutherford walking around in a dressing gown and apparently Phil had to sort of cool his heels when he got there, waiting for the previous drummer to finish up, so he was in the pool. 
So reading from Mike's book, by the time it came to Phil's turn, he'd already heard and memorized the part we were using for the audition. And when he sat down at the kit, you just knew. He had confidence. Mm -hmm. All the other guys had fiddled around, moved the cymbals, shifted their seat around a bit. But Phil simply changed the snare around because he was left-handed and got on with it. You know, so from the from the time he walks in, uh, Phil Collins, you know, has whatever whatever that Phil Collins had. Yep. And from there, they go on and they start touring. And at some point, Mick ends up leaving the band or, or something. They they wind up as a four piece for a, a period of time here. And this was the the period where the guitar parts were sort of split between Mike and Tony. So Mike ends up playing rhythm guitar and bass pedals, while Tony ends up playing guitar leads on his Honer Pianet through a fuzz box amplifier. Tony apparently credits this as, as having, you know, helping him develop his technique. So that I just find that interesting of, you know, here again, these guys are so consumed with this idea. They're not even going to let the idea, the, the mere fact that they don't have a guitarist stop them mm-hmm. from doing what they're going to do. And, and I find that to be kind of amazing. After Phil joins the band, and there are some funny stories about, you know, integrating Phil into the band and Phil sort of learning how Genesis operated, which apparently was a lot of yelling and screaming and fighting. Yeah. <laughs> but but right. there there's a passage here that I just I, I found interesting and I wanted to sort of talk about. There was a musical bond between Phil and Pete, or Pete and Phil too, because of Pete's sense of rhythm. He and Phil seemed to lock in from day one. They were both intuitive about music in the same way. It wasn't cerebral as it was with Tony. With Pete and Phil, it came from the gut. I find this idea of the connection between Phil and and Pete to be just fascinating. I guess I first came across that with the, the story of Peter Gabriel's third album. You know, Phil wasn't doing anything. Pete was recording an album and he came in and, you know, Pete wanted to do it without cymbals and all this other stuff. And, and from that presumably came, you know, the gated reverb sound and, and everything else and, and all of the, the lore that goes along with that. But, you know, coming into Genesis when we did and learning, if you will, that, you know, Peter Gabriel used to be in Genesis and this, that, and the other thing. And you have this, this idea of, you know, well, there must be some sort of animosity a la Pink Floyd. And, and that doesn't seem to be the case. And apparently these two were connected musically from the beginning. And so their levels of success perhaps make some sense. I don't know. Oh, I love singing drummers and singers love singing drummers. Any drummer who can plan the snare hits right where the singer needs it to make the singer sound better and to provide the power and just the right tempo. And, you know, folks who say, yes, Phil Collins, the best prog drummer, the best pop drummer, the best whoever, he always had a lyrical idea behind what he was doing. A long time ago, I heard an interview with Peter Gabriel where he talks, you know, he was asked about songwriting and he talks about, for him, it all started with the rhythm. And if the rhythm was, you know, sort of set the mood for what he was trying to convey. And so, you know, that that sort of fits hand in hand. So it, it just, it's fascinating the way that that goes. 
Now, another interesting thing, I think in, in one of the first two episodes, I'm pretty sure it was the first one, Ken, you had invoked at some point Van de Graaff Generator. And this becomes important because sometime in this period, Genesis was put out on the road on the Charisma Records Six Bob Tour with none other than the other two big acts on the Charisma label. That would be Lindisfarne and Van de Graaff Generator. I did not know this. Yes. This is good lore. Yeah. So so they were out on, on the road with these guys. But here's where it really gets funny. And, you know, Mike Rutherford, and I guess when you're Mike Rutherford at this stage in, in your life, you can say these sorts of things. But he pulls very few punches in this book. I'm going to read you a short paragraph then on, on Van de Graaff Generator. Van de Graaff were dark, heavy, and moody, a thinking man's type of band. Peter Hamill was a bit like a wild poet punching the air during songs. The trouble was they had no idea how to put a set together. <sighs> they, they put all the up songs in a row and then all the heavy, ponderous ones together. And by the end, it'd be so dark and you'd be so depressed you wouldn't know what to do with yourself. I learned how not to structure a set from them. <laughs> mm -hmm. Again, one of the things that I think we're going to find, if we want to, if we want to talk about it throughout this segment on Genesis, is generally speaking, Genesis knows how to track an album, and by ex and by extension, they know how to put a, a set list together for a live show. That's my background lore for nursery crime, Ken. Dig it. Thank you. So shall we get into it? Oh, we go. I find, you know, the musical box has attained almost mythical status in and amongst Genesis fans. What I find interesting is the musical box predates Steve Hackett joining the group. In fact, there are, there are different parts of this, according to the wikis, that were composed by both Mick Barnard and Anthony Phillips. So apparently Steve Hackett took those and modified them. I try to avoid the lore. Pete was out there inventing mythologies from whole cloth. <laughs> and, 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 and they'd write a song, and he'd, I think he continued to develop the dialogue even after the album was out and the song was done, and they were <laughs> live, and he needed more material. <laughs> and, and, and the macabre and the violence and the spectral apparitions just, just became part of that. And he, he was merely covering for Jerkoff's tuning very complicated inf instruments. I don't even know that, that the narrative means that much to me anymore. So we, we, we can go into the lore and the stories and Peter's kind of tirades before the song. Uh, but for me, it's, it's really just a spooky, beautiful song. And I try not to get too deep into that story. I, I mean, I, I just want to picture some dude on stage, Pete, singing, why won't you touch me, touch me, just at face value without yeah. reading too much into, you know, the fact that it's an old man as a ghost. Right. Well, <laughs> you know, it, there's so much to this this story around this song that I think is not conveyed with fidelity in just the lyrics themselves. So if you didn't have the preamble backstory, 
you would have no reason to suspect of what's actually going on. So, you know, I, I, I'm right there with you. It just becomes sort of part of the fascination, I think, with, with these songs, this sort of extra dimension. And I think ultimately this is going to continue to the point that, and I haven't gotten there yet in my preparation, but I've, I've heard this described by other folks on the, the gatefold of the lamb lies down on Broadway, which is already, you know, two, two discs full of, of music and story in it. There is apparently a very dense written something that's in there. And everyone apparently who opens the lamb expects, you know, all the answers to the lamb to be described in there. And apparently it's something else altogether. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He wanted a movie and he didn't get the movie, but he was so close and and he would have written it six ways from Sunday if they would have picked one of them. Yeah. The reason why I bring up the fact that the musical box sort of predated, you know, the writing of the rest of this album is because it, in a lot of ways, it really does bridge the gap. There are aspects to this that are very trespassy. Yeah. You know, very much like the knife. There are, there are, you know, the opening part is that, that folksy side of Genesis that we saw, uh, throughout the first two albums as well. But yeah. you do have at the same time, you know, I think Mike Rutherford is really sort of coming into his own as a bass player here. And I think the influence of Phil Collins and Steve Hackett is undeniable. Just putting this as the first track on here really serves to, to take you from trespass and push you forward. I think it's, it's brilliant. I wonder what Anthony Phillips felt about it, having, you know, been some of his material. Some of his instrumental material. Yeah. Perfect segue, but has his influence bleeding right into the newer Prague uh, chaos. Now, one of the things that happened as I was preparing for this episode, Ken, is, and I don't know if this is just me trying to create things or whatnot, but I, I listen to these these songs and I hear things that remind me of something else. Now, obviously... Nursery crime predates a lot of these things. So in this particular case, the, the relationship would be the things that I thought of were influenced perhaps by this. I don't know. One of those things happens at about 1.30 and it's, it's right after the, the play me my song bit in between play me my song and just a little bit more time. That musical section to me makes me think of Rime of the Ancient Mariner. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> which, would have, which would have come years later. So. Years, years later. Absolutely. Yes. But it, it, I hear that, and it's got that sort of, that creepy, flowy feel, you know, like, I don't know. It just, it made me think of that. So I thought that was very, very cool. And it's, you know, given where the song starts, I think that's kind of, of interesting. Um... And then, you know, at 340, everything picks up and you get into sort of that knife-like section. But Steve takes it like another level higher, I think. And then ultimately he, he gets very heavy and he, he totally starts to shred by the time the thing is all, all done. And I think what's interesting to me is, is that Tony and Phil are sort of working together to really 
drive the urgency of the later section of this of this track but it it really again it 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 speaks to the the magic that can happen when these musicians start to get together and and build off each other very cool the cricket theme makes me think of another fantastic english prog band may may i just read some lyrics to you briefly please I'm sure you will recognize this. I'm punting. I'm beagling. I'm winning. Reclining. I'm rucking. I'm fucking. <laughs> so welcome. It's a party. Like I, I, I see the correlation there. I see a little bit of influence. Well, yeah, it, and it's funny because you know, again, not looking too far ahead, I think there are a lot of sections on misplaced childhood that came right from the lamb lies down on Broadway. <laughs> I, th- I think I think they were listening to that a lot. In this particular record, there are a couple of moments where I hear things that make me think more of Fugazi, maybe, than, than Misplaced Childhood. And again, as we've said before, early, early Marillion is very heavily influenced by early Genesis. Very, very heavily. We know this now, in hindsight. We do know this. <laughs> and, you know, it's, I don't know, it's all good. Love it. All good. Perfect. So from there, we move on to Four Absent Friends. Now, this was this was written by Steve and Phil. And so they managed to, A, join the band, and B, get a track on right away. It's, it's a little sparse. And it's maybe not what you would expect from the two of them at this point. But this is what came out. I find the lyric to be charming in an odd sort of way. Oh, absolutely. While I know the subject matter is not exactly the same, for some reason, when I when I think about the lyrics and I, and I hear the song and everything else, I, it makes me think of Eleanor Rigby, and it's kind of strange. Oh, you know, I think the Beatles had just disbanded. So I, I imagine, you know, some n- nostalgia there. Yeah, we talk about Yes being contemporaries with the Beatles and Genesis for a bit being contemporaries with the Beatles. They they had disbanded by the time that this was released. Anything else on Four Absent Friends? Oh, my God. It's just so beautiful. I just love the way the interplay between the voices comes so naturally between Phil and Peter. And it's interesting you mentioned that because coming into Genesis when we did – Phil was the singer at that time, and then you learn that Peter was the singer, and you always assume that Peter was the singer. But Phil actually had a lot of singing to do, and he was mm-hmm. very involved, I mean, right from the get-go. Yep. And it's it's kind of impressive. And obviously, when we get to Harold the Barrel, you know, we've got – we'll talk about mm-hmm. that. So, it, it you know, the, when you go back in the way we did, and you discover sort of this early Genesis, there's such a deep texture to sort of work your way through. It's, it's fascinating. Do you, do you want to make an analogy between Phil Collins entering Genesis and Steve Howe entering Yes? Because it, it's kind of like, you know, at this point, the bands kind of get their superpower juice. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah. that's a great, great way to look at it. And and they get the superpower juice from, you know, these individuals being able to operate on multi-levels, right? 
Steve Howe brings yeah. his, his host of different instrumentation and creating textures that way. While Phil, he has the vocals, he has, you know, a songwriting ability and mm. he's able to play drums in a way that was unlike certainly anything the Genesis had at that point. Yep. Yeah. Oh, that's, perfect. that's brilliant, Ken. I love it. Okay. Return of the Giant Hogweave. Man, musically, this song is freaking phenomenal. I absolutely love it. The lyrics are utterly ridiculous. It doesn't matter because <laughs> Pete shows his falsetto. I think for the first time, he's really kind of vocally mastered that. And he's, he's, he's delivering it at the ends of the verses. And it really captures my attention. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, because the first 20 times I listened through this record, I was just jamming on this, you know, much in the way that, that you don't really pay attention to John Anderson lyrics. I wasn't really paying attention <laughs> because this song is just, it's so Sonic. good. Yeah. And, and then when you print out the lyrics and you go, what? Huh? Huh? <laughs> yeah. It doesn't, I, I see again, I, I like not being too deep in the lore. Uh, I, I, there's a very royal feeling between the staccato bass and the snare drum. Yeah. And, that, you know, and that carries me. And then Pete starts singing and that carries me. And as far as whatever story was uh, fueling, you know, the live shows, eh, whatever. It, this song stands on its own in so many different ways. The vocal line itself, regardless of the actual words being sung, the vocal line is compelling, right? So, oh God! Yeah, you really don't care, and that that sort of groove in the in the beginning after the uh, the intro, you know the the guitar key intro, and then you get into that that big groove. God, I just freaking love that. You know, here here's was another one of these recent epiphanies of mine, if you will. At the right near the end, um, after you get through the mighty hogweed business. There, right around six minutes and 58 seconds in, there's a section that just reeks of late model Stephen Wilson. And really, once I heard it, I was like, ooh, okay. When, when Paul and I talked about the Raven that refused to sing, um, I was playing a game of, of spot the prog influence. I didn't get that one because I hadn't realized it at the time. The strength of Hogweed is the fact that it really showcases all five of them sort of working in, in unison to create this wonderful bit of music. In terms of the instrumentation that I'm hearing in that, the Mellotron wasn't something that uh, Tony initially wanted to play. Hackett kind of encouraged him in that direction from what I read. And it's a very creepy instrument. Oh, yeah. And and no no doubt the version that we know from Stephen Wilson in Raven has got to be a digital sample, I would think. Uh, or or I mean, he's very resourceful. I'm sure he's got one or more and has preserved them. But back then, it was kind of a big deal. They're very creepy, and the sound to me is cold. Yeah, like I almost feel like I'm in the tundra. I'm out there, and the wind's blowing by me. It's it's it, it's it's a sound of of tape. Like actually magnetic tape being drug around a head. And it, it doesn't have the warmth of an organ. Like like it's it's not a pipe. Right. Yeah. No, it's absolutely. Not, 
and and air is 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 typically warming you know some some sort maybe shrill but it's still got some kind of a energy behind it but just just the thinness of the tape is really creepy on the Mellotron. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of hogweed, all things considered. I just think it's great. For me, if hogweed had reasonable lyrics, it would be in the, you know, in the discussion of, of an all-time great type song. But it doesn't, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give Pete props, though, because here is a prime example of dramatic storytelling. This is one of the hallmarks of prog rock. He brought in the the Latin name of the hogweed, which is pretty good to do. Oh, yeah. He's resourceful at this phase. He's going in big. And it, it pays off in spades when we get to the next album. I mean, isn't it? Isn't this whole thing just keeping you on the edge of your seat for Foxtrot? Oh, absolutely. It's like, it's like the biggest preview. <laughs> I wonder if you were listening, you know, if you were, if you were 15, 16, 17, whatever, in 1971, and you go to the record store and you pick up Nursery Crime, did you have any indication that the next album was going to be a complete game changer? Right. Who right. knows? So that takes us into Seven Stones. Now, I'm going to have to prop this up it, it, it's a sleeper and it, you can really lose this one you know the melodies really keep it going just kind of pete's authenticity there uh, i heard the old man tell his tale now i don't understand where this is going and even looking at at, at, the, at the lyrics and there's a lot of uh uh, boating analogies and what's not, and I just never got into it. But it's so beautiful in total. The whole package is satisfying. I agree with you 100% because I had a very similar experience. It was This was one of the songs that, just because of the, the ah-ah chorus, it just fills me with a warm, fuzzy feeling. And so I've been... I've been a fan of this song from the beginning of of hearing this record. And as I went in, much like you just described and started looking at the lyrics, it I find it difficult to maybe get the exact meaning. But at the same time, there's a certain beauty of the the structure of the lyrics. The old man reference at the, the start of each section. And, you know, he, he sort of sets the stage for what you're going to get. And even if you can't get your brain exactly around it, I think musically and, and lyrically, you wind up in what feels to be a sort of a good place, right? Oh, yeah. You don't have that creepiness that we were just talking about. And that can pop up sometimes very much on purpose in Genesis records. Looking at the lyrics, I think there's a certain amount of, of cautionary tale aspect to this, you know, wisdom from the old man of, you know, sometimes people get caught up in things, but the old wise man isn't going to be too worried about that while everyone else is thrashing around in, in their concern or whatever. But it still conveys this idea that once you gather that wisdom, you can get to a place where it's okay. Phil's vocals have a lot to do with this here, as well as as his drumming. I think, you know, we're starting to see the influence of, of Phil as a drummer and making 
these songs more interesting and being able to fit in perfectly with, with where they're going to take us. And one of my notes here just says that the keyboard section at the end of this is just hot. Oh, you know, I'm going to credit Tony just going out on a limb. It's probably his compositional skill shining through here. And this is a preview for post Gabriel era Genesis. It has some of that, uplifting spiritual kind of stuff that Tony kept pounding into that, that next phase leading in the Duke. So I, I agree with you. I think seven stones is a sleeper, but I personally enjoy it tremendously. Mm-hmm. And I very, okay. much, I very much look forward to it when it comes up. Now, uh, Harold, the barrel, Harold, the barrel. I have had a difficult relationship with this song. <laughs> okay. Initially, I was rather put off by what I attributed as straight-up silliness. Then I realized that what I thought was silly, I actually enjoyed sort of musically the, the, the you know, here we talk about the rhythm, right? And, and Peter's saying the rhythm drives the song. The, 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 the rhythm and the cadence of this song kind of drew me in eventually. And so I started paying attention to it. And as I started paying attention to it, what I realized was we have ourselves a classic example of soundtrack dissonance because this song sounds bouncy and goofy, but this song's dark and creepy as hell. <laughs> there you go. If you don't pay attention to it, the dual vocal line, and an interesting bit of lore, according to the wikis here, is that this vocal track was... Pete and Phil recorded onto a single track. So you do not have the ability to separate them. Really? They are one and and the same for now and forever. So you can remaster this all you want, but that vocal track is what it is. Oh, I love it. Yeah. So that vocal doubling sort of adds to this this bouncy feel, right? And you would, and, and the song's name is Harold the Barrel. Well, that's kind of a funny thing, you know. And and it it's it has this almost Keystone's Cop, Looney Tunes feel about it. Love it. Yeah. My initial reaction was to just sort of throw it away. Oh, they're just being silly. Mm-hmm. But they're not being silly. And when you when you start looking at the lyrics and the the structure, and again of of the cadence and how they fit things in and how they sort of layer things on top of each other and you have you know here's an example of 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 peter bringing in these different characters if you will now it's not quite as fully developed in terms of vocals cuz it's just pete and phil blasting through everything and if you don't have sort of the liner notes you wouldn't know but but here again pete is developing all of this and when you get down to that last little bit Harold saying, you must be joking, taking, take a running jump. But that jump fades out as a man falling down from a building. And, and the music sort of does the same thing. It's almost like, and, and if you look at the, the lyrics that are printed out, it has, you know, I guess it has four periods here. The normal is to use three. But but the music does that same thing, right? It just sort of you've got all of this going on and all these characters coming in and, and you know trying to grab the spotlight. And in the middle of all this is poor Harold, who's having you know his own little crisis, and he ends it by jumping off this building. 
oh, it's just, man. <laughs> the, 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 just, I, I can't even describe it, but the way that they end that song, and again, if you blink, you miss it. But now that I've heard it, this whole song just spooks me tremendously. They were very macabre in this period, you know, starting with the lead-off track. Yeah, I'll just quote the lyrics here. <laughs> Early on, halfway through the first verse, Father of three, it's disgusting, such a horrible thing to do. Harold the Barrel cut off his toes and he served them all for tea. <laughs> can't go far. He can't go far. <laughs> he hasn't got a leg to stand on. He can't go far. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, they, they were patting themselves on the back. No doubt. Probably to do them justice, we would have to look at the uh, movies and, and British TV of the period, because clearly there's, they're getting something culturally. I love it. <laughs> Nothing I would gravitate towards on my own, but yeah, they, they do an absolutely fantastic job. I, I want to credit Trespass, Pennsylvania's Trespass, just an amazing tribute band, really nailed Harold the Barrel. I mean, they? They, do, they do... Pretty much all of the Trespass album, pretty much all of this album. And and I saw Harold the Barrel in a New Light through their rendition. Interesting. Indeed. So that takes us to Harlequin, which uh, by Mike Rutherford's own admission is not his favorite. He's not very fond of the lyrics on this. I actually don't mind the lyrics. My notes here say I like the chorus, actually all of it. Harlequin also falls into the sleeper category, I think, with Seven Stones, although I think Harlequin is even perhaps more of more of a sleeper. Mm-hmm. Yep. I don't know that I like it quite as much as Seven Stones, but I don't find myself really skipping any tracks in Genesis albums until I get into the second disc of Lamb. So... You well, know. I, I, I would say by this point in the album, the charm of the dark production is worn off. You yeah. know, for, for whatever reason, in the musical box, okay, it's not a high fidelity album, but the charm of the, the song is really carrying me along. And I might make it through the whole first side. But by the time we get here, it's like, you know, it just doesn't sound that good as an album. <laughs> well, and I think I think Harlequin, while I don't think it's as strong a song as these others that we've talked about so far, and so you don't really have something to propel you through sort of the, the technical shortcomings, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just don't know what to make of all the pieces in the sky. It's a beautiful vocal line. Yeah. But I don't know that I visualize enough from this. Well, and maybe that's what Mike was talking about. Maybe that's why he's dissatisfied with these lyrics because they don't deliver quite what they need to. Okay. Okay. And then we have our big, uh, our big historical drama piece. You know, when you need some inspiration for a prog song, Oh, you can't go wrong with a little mythology, right? Love it. So we go to the Fountain of Samalsis, which purports to to convey the story of Hermaphrodite. Yeah, you know, for me, all it conveys is that Tony Banks is awesome. 
And and I almost have no idea what, what, what Peter's talking about. Well, it's funny. I had no idea what Peter was talking about until I, I literally found the lyrics and read along with the song. If I hadn't done that, I would have no idea. It's a pretty straightforward rendition of what happens. And it's funny because there are different characters here and they sort of overlap in certain regards. Okay. So the the child Hermaphroditus was the son of Hermes and Aphrodite, the result of a secret love affair. For this reason, he was entrusted to the nymphs on the isolated Mount Ida, who allowed him to grow up as a wild creature of the woods. After his encounter with the water nymph Salmasis, he laid a curse upon the water. According to the fable, all persons who bathed in the water became hermaphrodites. So you've got Hermaphroditus, you've got a narrator, you've got Samalsis talking in here, and they're all sort of on top of each other. It's it's really very fascinating. And looking at this, like in the in the choruses, it's either Hermaphroditus and or Samalsis who have sort of the lead line, but there's there's credited a narrator line, which is buried way deep in the mix. That's kind of hard to pick out if you don't know that it's there. But even even again at this point, I am willing to sort of revel in the fact that Peter is willing to construct this very intricate design of the song. So I, I think it's really very cool. You know, there's there's a point later in this song where Tony Banks takes over this song and, and he puts I, I have just described here as being very, very airy. And and it's just like he he lifts you up into the sky. It's it's very strange, but it, it's really very good. And again, I think for me there were a couple of points in here where I thought you know Mike Rutherford is really starting to figure out how to how to play bass here again as we move into these these next sequences of albums. You're going to see Mike Rutherford continue to sort of develop his craft as well, because we haven't really talked about Mike that much, but we will, I think. Good. I think it's a it's a very ambitious song. It's a it's ambitious in terms of its structure. It's ambitious in terms of the story they're trying to tell. But I think you know they get what ninety percent of the way there. Do you think? Yeah, you know, it, it it goes back to what you opened up this episode with. This this album is so close to being great, and yep. and, and I think <laughs> I think this song, you know, encapsulates that perfectly. There there are all the 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 sort of aspects, the hallmarks that you want, and they're they're so close to being lined up, but it's just not quite there. Now, as as we pointed out. That by the next album, shit's really going to go down. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You you said quite a few things there. To briefly recap, you, you said basically how lofty, light, and airy the sound was coming from Tony, and I attribute the the Mellotron. That's it's another interpretation. Whereas I said kind of cold being out in the tundra, and you, you you're right. kind of like up in the skies. Yes, it does it does wonders for that and. Uh, Tony will keep the sound in his arsenal for, for, for decades to come after this point. And I, I think he's a little more subtle when he throws it in. This is kind of like blatant Mellotron in your face. <laughs> <laughs> and then you talked about Mike. God, what 
an asset. Like what the perfect complement to a personality like Tony, who's who's always injecting, you know, his direction. And then and kind of an impatient front man like Pete, who's always got to have a story, always got to have a shtick, always got a costume. And if there is a Zen master in the family of Genesis, it's got to be Mike, because he's he's keeping his cool no, no matter what's going on. <laughs> and he's adding that glue that just like nails it all together. It's fantastic. And and that's going to become even more important as the number of people in Genesis shrinks. You know, Mike Rutherford has got to be the most chill professional musician, <laughs> you know, to ever come across because he, he really, he seems to check his ego at the door and he's certainly capable of shredding. And I think Duke is a perfect example of that. Mike Rutherford, freaking slays on duke but when you look at some of the later stuff he's very willing to sort of step back and be almost casual in terms mm -hmm. of what he plays and, and and he does this on two different instruments at this point and then when you flip back around to and i know a lot of people don't necessarily like this but when you flip back around to calling all stations he has no problem sort of flexing his muscles and saying yeah, I can make a guitar record. Absolutely. It, it's fascinating to me. I, I find him to be just absolutely captivating. I would say he shreds here. There are first places on the first side where he gets to let loose. And, it, it, you know, we clearly know he's there. Brilliant just to have that it, where where he could have gone hog. He, he could have been the next Chris Squire. But he knew that, you know, that that wasn't happening with the Genesis personalities. Yeah. I very much enjoy nursery crime. I really, really do. I can't, I can't say it's as, as stellar as some other albums are going to talk about. It's certainly a progression. Is it better than Trespass? In a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, again, they're, they're learning how to be musicians and songwriters and it shows and you mm -hmm. can see where they're going to go, but it's, it's no foxtrot. And that's, that's not a knock on this album at all. <laughs> they, they're kind of the nirvana of prog rock like they did a lot of shitty stuff before they got good <laughs> <laughs> we're not saying that nursery crime is shitty i don't think right <laughs> it's just it's just dark musically and sonically and in total it's not up to the creations of its age it's not up to its peers at this point sure but, yeah they are very quickly getting there. Right. You know, if we're drawing the Yes parallel, it's no it's no the Yes album. Right. For their age, it's just fantastic. Um, before um, you called me for this episode, I was streaming a 1970s ELP show at the Lyceum in London. And I, I, I noticed that uh, uh, Genesis had played uh, the Lyceum. It seems to be a hotbed for uh, creativity back then. I always wondered, what was it about these bands like Yes and Genesis that they so loved ELP? And then it just hit me in this video. They were so young and so innocent and yet so comfortable with their instruments. There's a direct connection between what those guys were doing and what some of these other bands are trying to achieve. Really? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I thought the later ELP got so noisy and you were collecting the albums and I was skeptical that even, you know, you would keep that up. ELP at the at the Lyceum, the, the first probably 10, 15 minutes before they make a wall of, of noise is is really enlightening. And, and uh, Greg Lake with his, you know, warm vocals and acoustic guitar chops, I could definitely see, you know, that was on my quest to figure out, you know, between renaissance and fairport convention and, and and whatnot what was it about all these friggin acoustic guitars you know did they want to be peter paul and mary like what the hell's going on here but it's a nice balance that genesis achieves between those influences and the uh, american hippie influences i'm glad that there's something there in elp because that is something that i am still sort of struggling with uh, i don't know that i've gotten deep in enough but i you know you're talking about the acoustic guitars and everything else I loved the video that you sent us of, of the musical box. And we all know this is the case, but it's, it's very cool to see Tony Banks playing a 12 string guitar. We've heard mm-hmm. about it, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but, but to actually see it with your own eyes, it's, it's a cool sort of liberating thing. And it's like, yeah, awesome. I love it. And that video is actually sonically better than the album. I mean, it, it, it's unpredictable. It's live. Sure. It's awkward. But it draws me in, I would say, a little bit more than the studio recording. We got this almost album out of the way, and I'm just salivating hearing the next track in my sequence, which is Watcher of the Skies. Oh, yes. I'm, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm afraid our next episode may be one of our marathon episodes, Ken. <laughs> It'll be worth every minute. Absolutely. All right. Well, Ken, thank you so much for uh, staying up late and talking nursery crime with me here tonight. And as you mentioned, I look, very much look forward to our next episode when we can talk about... big and fuzzy thank you (laughs) we hope you've enjoyed this episode of progressive blabber as always we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you and we encourage you to reach out and share your thoughts feelings and experiences with nursery crime you can reach us on twitter facebook and Instagram. We are at ProgPala on all of those, or you can search for Progressive Blabber. You're free to email us. Our email address is progpala at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is, as always, available for subscription and download on Apple, Google, and Spotify these days, and we are hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>